Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Akshay Pendil. He is a cardiologist and a fellow here at the Yale School of Medicine. I'll let him tell us a little bit more about himself. Thanks, Max. Um, yeah, I'm a cardiologist, and I'm here doing a postdoctoral research fellowship in the National Clinician Scholars Program, formerly called the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program. Um, aimed at physicians just like myself who have recently completed training, who are looking to gain exposure to things like health services research, health policy, um, and are looking to become what they describe as change agents, although I kind of hate that phrase, but uh, yeah. Fabulous. Um, So actually, I recently had the pleasure of reading a couple of the articles you've written in Kevin MD, and one that really stood out was your piece on why physicians should care about structural racism. And, you know, that's not necessarily a topic that comes up a lot in the literature that's uh, aimed at a medical audience. And I'm curious as to what prompted you to write this article. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, certainly when I was in medical school, which is becoming longer and longer ago, we didn't really have any formal training in things like structural racism, let alone health disparities uh, or health injustice or inequity. It came up from time to time in our sort of social medicine classes and in small group discussions, but there was no formalized training in it. And so when I finished medical school and I became an internal medicine resident and then ultimately a cardiology fellow, my initial exposure to concepts like these, like structural racism, institutional racism, uh, health disparities in general came as a direct consequence of patient care, you know, mm-hmm. whether it was working in like a safety net hospital, you know, I did my residency in Colorado. So at Denver Health, which is like the large city public hospital analogous to Bellevue in Denver, um, or, you know, um, when I was a cardiology fellow um, and I would see patients, especially at the VA who traveled, you know, for hours, if not days to come and get cardiology care once a year, but uh, otherwise uh, were sort of out there in the wilderness, so to speak, not getting adequate care. Um, These patients were often patients of color. They were often working class patients. And I couldn't help but notice that um, a lot of times uh, the sort of structural barriers that they were facing, even outside of the clinic room, especially outside of the clinic room, um, were longstanding, historically embedded, um, and were having what I felt like very real consequences on health. Um, And concurrent to all this, concurrent to my medical training, you know, America was having its own sort of ongoing but iterative reckoning with its racial past. Um, When I was a medical intern, that was when Trayvon Martin was killed. And it wasn't long after that that there was this litany of other, you know, black and brown men who were dying at the hands of the police. Um, And I think this problem obviously has been ongoing. It's sort of just now being raised in terms of public consciousness. It's not necessarily a new problem. It's as old as America itself. But what I kept seeing, I think, among uh, 
um, pieces that were written about these police killings and when I would talk to people is that, you know, this is a manifestation of um, the sort of everyday interpersonal racism that I think, you know, people of color are accustomed to, you know, facing in this country. This is racism that, you know, lies in the hearts and minds of men and, you know, um, exists at an individual level. And I just felt like given what I had seen in my clinic, mm-hmm. given what we were now seeing um, in the news in terms of police violence, um, and then given the other sort of health disparities that exist in other sectors, housing being one of them, which is a particular research interest of mine, I thought there's no way that this is simply relegated to the level of the individual. We are clearly dealing with a systemic structural problem here. And again, this is not a new concept. Um, Stokely Carmichael put it best, you know, when he gave the definition of institutionalized racism decades ago. Yeah, I want to read what you have here. And by the way, I'm a big fan of Stokely Carmichael. I went to Howard University, so big shoes to fill in there. Fantastic. (laughs) And so you read, your description here says, the term structural racism, also called institutional or systemic racism, refers to a set of formal and informal policies relegating a certain racial minority to an underprivileged status within society. It functions to preserve the unequal racial status quo through laws, norms, and social institutions. Um, In your piece, you bring up housing, and as you say, it's one of your personal um, sort of interests, right? And would you mind chatting, talking a little bit more about um, ways in which recently housing has been a target in terms of uh, issues of, I guess, structural racism and how that may affect people's health? Yeah, certainly. I mean, for me, the issue of housing um, represents, you know, or embedded within the issue of housing are all of American society's, you know, sort of fault lines, whether it's class or whether it's, uh, you know, race. Um, I think the history of housing in America is essentially the history in many ways of um, African-Americans in this country, for instance, given the racialized history of housing. Mm -hmm. It's the history of the working poor. Um, And so I thought kind of no discussion of uh, health disparities, however you want to define them, or structural racism in health is complete without a discussion of housing and the longstanding injustices that housing, uh, you know, has contained uh, within it. Um, This dates back, obviously, to, you know, post-Civil War, you know, after abolition, the Great Migration northward by newly freed blacks um, into northern and midwestern industrial cities who were seeking new jobs after their newfound freedom, but they were relegated, you know, to ghettos, right? They were relegated to areas of concentrated poverty. Um, the social scientists Doug Massey and Nancy Denton and Patrick Sharkey have all documented this, you know. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't merely a natural phenomenon. This was a purposeful phenomenon because they were relegated to these areas at the hands of whites. They were often met with violence um, for daring to encroach into predominantly white neighborhoods. Um, And then that violence was 
codified into law. You know, there were very strict de jure laws about where blacks could um, live. Yeah, uh, and policy in the 1940s. Exactly right. And, you know, tons of people have written about this, but I think it's unfortunately not something that gets mentioned as much as it gets mentioned in the social science literature. It's not mm-hmm. something that get me- gets mentioned in the medical literature. And so that was another motivation of mine for wanting to write that piece is to bring to light this history, um, which we didn't learn about in American history class. And, you know, when I was in high school, we didn't learn about it in medical school, but it nevertheless um, comes to bear on the daily experiences of, you know, uh, people of color, poor people uh, in this country. Mm-hmm. And so how has your experience as a cardiology fellow and now as a cardiologist that's doing this type of research um, influence the direction in which you're going academically? That's a good question. Um, I'm not entirely sure where I'm going to go academically like in the long term, but at least right now, my research interests center on this intersection between housing and health, specifically cardiovascular health. Um, I initially was interested in studying things like racial residential segregation and their health effects, like Mm -hmm. at a population level. Uh, There's some brilliant work that's being done by... uh, uh, Ana Diaz-Rue is probably the biggest contributor in this area. She's a public health uh, scholar, dean of the School of Public Health at Drexel, and she has studied the measurable effects that racial residential segregation has on things like systolic blood pressure in African-American cohorts or rates of obesity. Um, and these persist even after controlling for you know traditional socioeconomic variables, which is to say there's something about the effect of segregation itself mm-hmm. um, uh, on the health of African-Americans in this country. I found that fascinating when I was first exposed to that literature. But then I thought, you know, what can my contribution to the literature be? Um, you know, in cardiology, I don't think there's a lot of people that are interested in uh, this sort of research, social determinants of health, but specifically housing and health. Um, and certainly there are not a lot of people that are doing qualitative work in that area, which is uh, another thing that I thought I could contribute. So my current scholarly interests are in um, doing qualitative ethnographic work almost, interviewing patients who have congestive heart failure and housing insecurity here in New Haven, Connecticut, you know, mm-hmm. which is a city of 130, 140,000 people, um, you know, large African-American population, a formerly industrial city with the Winchester Repeating Arms factory. But when that factory went away, this city was prototypical in a lot of ways and emblematic of the large-scale deindustrialization that a lot of cities experienced, leaving uh, a lot of poverty, a lot of segregation, again, predominantly affecting people of color uh, in its wake. And so I felt like it would be a good place to undertake this type of research. And so uh, what have you been finding so far in your sort of qualitative work here um, relating to cardiovascular health and housing insecurity? Yeah, it's been really interesting. I think for me, the best part of this work is um, it encapsulates the best parts of being a doctor, which is talking to patients and really getting their stories, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and 
we heard it said so many times in medical school. I don't think I really believed it until now, even, um, which is that no two patients are alike, despite the similarities that may manifest on paper. Um, unfortunately, in the clinic, you only have 15, 20 minutes max to talk to people when you're trying to address medical problems and, you know, all these things. But in my qualitative work, I have the luxury of sitting down with folks for an hour, hour and a half and just getting their story. Um, and these are folks who, like I said, have congestive heart failure, which as a cardiologist, you know, I, I know, but I don't really know kind of how difficult it is for folks to take care of it. Um, all I know is that I ask patients with congestive heart failure to do a lot, take medicines up to three times a day, weigh themselves daily, restrict their fluid intake, restrict their salt intake. If they have a device like a defibrillator or a pacemaker in place to transmit data periodically, these are things that I just ask my patients with congestive heart failure to do. Um, but, you know, it seemed or seems pretty clear to me that if you don't have a stable place to live, a place to go home at night, um, those things become orders of magnitude more difficult. And that's exactly what I've been finding in my research is to be homeless or to be recently evicted or to be couch surfing and, you know, staying on a friend's couch one night and another friend's couch another night is to have an extremely unstable life. And there are multiplier effects that arise from that. Not being able to take your medications in the routine way that I require or ask my patients to. Not being able to make appointments. Certainly not being able to weigh yourself daily or adhere to any semblance of like a heart-healthy diet. You know, I have uh, stories of patients who, uh, you know, they say things like, I was you know, camping in a tent outside, you know, um, and all my stuff got stolen, my backpack with all my medications in it. Um, or when I was at the homeless shelter, um, cause I was lucky enough to get a spot there. Uh, you know, they keep all your stuff under lock and key. So I wasn't even able to access my medications or, you know, uh, a guy who was lucky enough to have sort of a kin network in the area and he was able to stay with friends and family, you know, here and there. But depending on where he was sleeping that night, you know, he would have been on the other side of town and couldn't make it to his doctor's appointments the next day. And so I think, you know, if there is like a consistent theme across these stories, it's that um, stability, that sense of uh, a constant, uh, that sense of what social scientists have described as ontological security, you know, um, that arises from having a place to call home. That is important and necessary, not just for like our mental well-being and our development as people, but for our health as well, especially in a disease like congestive heart failure that requires a lot of self-management. Mm. Yeah. And so in your essay here, you mention a couple of ways in which physicians have attempted to address health disparities um, in ways that you don't find to be far enough. Um, so I, uh, for example, you talk about implicit bias trainings and sort of f efforts to increase the diversity in the healthcare workforce, which both are really important, but don't necessarily um, get to the root cause of issues relating to structural racism, like homelessness, um, as you mentioned. 
And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on ways in which physicians can get involved in addressing some of these issues and where the responsibility for physicians and other healthcare workers actually lies and sort of where is the room for us to create a wedge um, and address these issues? That's another good question. And I mean, let me say first, I don't I don't mean to cast blame, and I'm not implying fault with folks who advocate for things like implicit bias training or increased diversity in the healthcare workforce. I think those are important goals. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The problem is they don't go far enough. And Mm -hmm. the problem is our window of, you know, discourse on issues like this is so narrow that solutions often stop there um, without getting to what I see as being the deeper underlying structures um, like, you know, generations long, you know, histories of segregation, redlining, you know, which leads to, you know, perpetuated intergenerational poverty, like all these things that um, even if people are aware of, they're not really talking about. So I think physicians can play a really important role. Um, One, by just raising awareness of the issue in general, which is kind of what I meant to do uh, with the essay that I wrote. It was geared, I guess, as at a, at a physician, you know, at a physician audience, uh, mostly because I thought that, um, I'm not sure this is something that gets talked about enough in the physician community. So we probably ought to be educating ourselves on the history that's at work here. You can't, you know, know where you're going without knowing where you've been to sort of say it in like a very trite manner. But, you know, the history here is extremely important. And so that was aim one, I think, of what that piece was, is I wanted people to realize that this is not something that just kind of materialized out of thin air when you're talking about housing inequity is a manifestation of structural racism against African-Americans in this country. It's something that has, you know, historical residues attached to it. Um, in terms of concrete things that physicians can do, um, and I think I outlined this briefly in the piece, but one is um, ascertaining the problem, you know, implementing screening tools at the clinic level to ask about things like housing insecurity. This is something that uh, the clinic that I work at here in New Haven, the Fairhaven Community Health Center, is starting to do. We've rolled out a social determinants of health screening questionnaire in the last couple of months. Two of the questions ask about things like housing insecurity. Um, That's at the clinic level. You know, I think uh, at the sort of state level, um, lobbying for state governments to not only expand Medicaid, which is unfortunately still a challenge that, you know, um, we're still working toward, but use those Medicaid funds to do things like for residential support, you know. Um, Don't restrict the ways in which Medicaid funds can be spent. If we're calling housing the sort of structural linchpin of overall stability and well-being, which I believe it is because it, you know, determines so much of your life, across your life course, you know, where you shop, which clinic you get seen at, which school you go to or your kids go to, you know. It determines so much. Um, And so if we acknowledge that, then... Of course, we should be channeling healthcare dollars to improving the quality and access to housing. And I think Medicaid can play an important role there. Um, I mean, I understand it's an uphill battle due to recalcitrance on the part of, you know, a lot of 
in my mind, backward looking politicians and stuff, but that doesn't mean physicians can't advocate for it. You know, we have some of those powerful lobbying organizations in the country. We can at least use that lobbying power to bring this issue to light and, and advocate for it. Mm-hmm. And then I think channeling research dollars is the other big thing. You know, let's study not only the effect that uh, housing insecurity can have on health, let's study not only the effect that, you know, racial residential segregation can have on health, as Ana Diaz Rue has been doing for a while now, but let's study some interventions too, you know. Um, uh, there was one study called Moving to Opportunity, you know, um, that was essentially a randomized study that did just that. But that was a while ago, and it was a pretty small study, and it had some faults associated with it. I think we need to imagine bigger, think bigger, and really study uh, housing insecurity. And I said this in the piece as like a treatable and you know preventable health exposure. Um, imagine you know writing a prescription, you know, uh, something as simple but as potent as that. Um, um, Mitch Katz, you know, who's the you know, newly appointed director of uh, the New York Health and Hospitals Corporation. He was in L.A. previously, and he had a great quote that, you know, is like very simple, very pithy. But it's like, you know, I know exactly how to uh, solve the problem of homelessness. It's to give people homes. You know, Absolutely. Like, that's how you do it. Um, so I think we need to approach it with that attitude and, you know, go forward from there. Gotcha. So you mentioned something interesting about the, you know, fact that as physicians or healthcare workers at large, we have some of some of the more powerful lobbying forces. Um, and just kind of looking at the history of the AMA, for example, American Medical Association, um, the AMA actually hasn't been the most sort of um, forward thinking in terms of uh, advocating for important policies such as Medicaid, you know, the AMA at first was against um, right. the passage of Medicaid and Medicare. So I don't know what your thoughts are in terms of, um, you know, what we need to do in order to move the conversation within our own um uh, within our own sort of body of healthcare, you know, beyond just sort of raising awareness like you are doing um, at yeah. this level. Um, you know, I think that's where uh, actually I could turn it around and say this is where a podcast like this and the work you're doing is so important because it's getting at medical students, you know, it's getting at people who have not yet even entered the healthcare workforce, so to speak, and have not yet been subject to the sort of uh, regulatory capture is not the right term here, but you know what I mean? Like they haven't been sort of ensconced in the, the, um, the culture of medicine, which I think is actually, um, in many ways kind of deleterious to social justice, you know, uh, and progressivism. So I think actually medical students, and I'm very heartened by the medical students I talk to, yourself included, who like care about stuff like this, um, whether Thank it's, you know, housing equity or like structural racism or, you know, police violence or food insecurity, all these like huge issues that I'm ashamed to admit, like when I was in medical school, you know, weren't really on my radar. Uh, I kind of told you at the beginning of the show, like the evolution that I had to go through in order to start caring about this stuff. And, um, I'm very heartened by the fact that the younger generation, like you guys are on it, man. So I think, um, 
uh, you know, that is one piece of it. And so the AMA to me, like, yeah, they're going to be around. They've been a powerful organization for a while, but they represent kind of the old guard, you know, they're a specialty organization. Um, and that's not to say they're uniformly bad or uniformly good. It is, it is what it is. But in my mind, if we can supplant an organization like that with a new organization, like Physicians for a National Health Plan, you know, or Physicians for Human Rights, like some of these truly progressive physician groups that comprise the younger generation of physicians that actually care and, you know, or care about issues of, you know, social justice and equity, um, then I think we got a chance, you know. What about running for office? <laughs> it's something uh, that we probably all got to consider, especially now. You know, I always read these pieces like in The New York Times about how like more and more people are considering like quitting their day job and running for office. And, you know, I'm a little sad that it's, you know, the 2016 presidential election is what it took for that to happen. But again, I'm very heartened by like, you know, in the New York 14th district, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez unseating yes. like a, you know, like incumbent, like Democrat who was part of the New York city political machine. I'm very heartened by that. She's 28 years old and she is like in all likelihood going to be headed to Congress. Like that's fantastic. So the thing that, you know, I think is a challenge for people like us in medicine is the time of, you know, what it takes to study and train to become a doctor. And even once you're a doctor, it's kind of all consuming, you know, it doesn't leave much time or cognitive bandwidth to um, do things like you know, devote your life to causes of social justice and sort of further the cause of racial and economic equity in America. There are people that do it, but I really think that, um, it's not necessarily that doctors aren't concerned with these issues. I think as we talked about, especially among the younger generation, a lot of them are, but medicine and the way it's practiced in America, it's like, you know, the training and even, you know, um, the constraints that are placed on physicians in terms of how they practice and the financial incentives and the profit motive, like it doesn't leave much room, I think, for um, the sort of progressivism that we're talking about. So I don't know the way to get around that. It might be a conversation for another time. But like all I can say is if you can manage to get through medical training like I did, you know, in internship and residency and fellowship and then even now and try and hold on even a little bit or let some part of your brain while you're on call in the CCU or while you're, you know, like taking care of patients on call or whatever, allow some part of your brain to still be immersed in this stuff, you know, um, don't turn it off completely. It's okay for it to lay dormant for a while, but, um, I just want, you know, people not to get discouraged and sort of let the demands of clinical care and the demands of training, um, which are considerable. I wouldn't want that to let people or to, to get in the way of this progressive, you know, physician workforce that I really think we have and that we can take advantage of. Um, so that was kind of a long and winded answer to your question. But yes, I'm all for progressive physicians running for office, especially in highly competitive districts where they can unseat um, sort of, you know, uh, long term incumbent uh, politicians who are beholden to, you know, financial or corporate interests and stuff. Um, not to get too political, but that's how I feel. <laughs> 
I mean, I'll make sure to remember your advice in terms of making sure to hold on to the fire yeah. as I go through medical training. Totally. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the conversation. I appreciate um, hearing from both your experience and the, the ways in which you have come along in getting engaged and wanting to engage more physicians. Um, and I hope to have you back for further discussion. For sure. I'd love to. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.